traditional when um, starting uh, a Buddhist teaching or a Buddhist practice to um, go for refuge and to set our motivation. Um, refuge is a, a Buddhist, the Buddhist idea of how we seek shelter, how we seek protection in samsara. Samsara is a Sanskrit word that refers to the cycle of recreating our own suffering through ignorance, through mis, uh, misapprehending how the world works. And so all the ordinary ways that we go for refuge in our, um, in our jobs, in our paychecks, in our, our home to provide us with literal shelter from weather and um, go for refuge to the fire department if our house catches on fire. But in Buddhism, those are considered kind of a, a, a sort of a superficial way to go for refuge because those things aren't reliable. You know, your money's not necessarily going to be there when you need it. Your house isn't necessarily going to be there when you need it. Uh, let alone calling the police if you're in trouble. Um, so in, in Buddhist thought, the, the, there are three things that can provide us real shelter, and that's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And there are a variety of different ways of going for refuge. Um, there are many beautiful poems that are commonly recited uh, in meditation. We have this example over here on the wall where it says, I take refuge in awakening, I take refuge in the path of awakening, I take refuge in my companions on the path to awakening. Um, I like to, when I'm thinking about refuge, I, I like to go into what that means to me to sort of invoke uh, a sense of what, of what refuge is rather than merely reciting the words. I like to also think about what the, what the real meaning behind them is. And uh, so when we go for refuge to the Buddha, we're going for refuge, we're seeking protection for our mind in the idea that there is a perfected state of being, that we are, as individuals and, and as a collective, we are on an evolutionary path that will ultimately lead to a state where our mind is calm and clear and apprehends reality accurately a mind that is not reactive and buffeted about by emotional reactivity. That there is a being who, that there is a, a state of being, I should say, that is perfectly compassionate and responds to every situation with love and is never angry or afraid or retaliatory or judgmental. A state of mind that is always, that sees every being the way that a mother sees their own only child. And not just human beings, of course, but animals and insects and in the Buddhist pantheon, there are all kinds of beings that we can't see with our eyes or apprehend with our ordinary senses. And there are infinite numbers of beings. And that the reason we're doing this, the reason we show up to something like this, is because we're cultivating a state of consciousness that responds to every situation with love and compassion and kindness and altruism. And that's what going for refuge to the Buddha means. You know, we're not 
worshiping an idealized being that we think exists outside of ourselves. We're going for refuge to the, to the fact, according to Buddhist philosophy, the fact that we will become that being, that we will become that being for others, that we will achieve a state where we can truly be of service, unselfishly, unselfconsciously, unreservedly helping others, providing for them all the things that they could need and so that's a very um, lofty state, and we're kind of putting our foot in the, putting the stake in the ground, you know, that says that's why, that's why I exist. That's what I'm doing with my life, is to get a little closer to that state. And then we go for refuge to the Dharma, and the Dharma is like the trail of breadcrumbs that has been left behind by other beings who have achieved this state of consciousness themselves. Um, you know, we have the historical Buddha, um, Siddhartha Gautama, who um, taught extensively during his life uh, after he achieved the, the, this state of enlightenment, of perfected consciousness. Um, but we're not limited to just the historical Buddha. There are lots of beings like this who have um, left their insights and experiences either in the form of an oral lineage or in the form of written teachings. Um, we're going to, in tonight's class, we're looking at some teachings by uh, a, um, a person named Jay Tsongkhapa, who lived in the um, 14th and, uh, 13th and 14th century, and also uh, Kamala Shila, who lived around 750 AD. And so these are people who devoted their lives to preserving and spreading teachings on how to become truly happy. And the teachings on, truly, on how to be truly happy are rooted in the idea of altruism, compassion, serving others, seeing others' needs as, as important or more important than my own kind of selfish little animalic needs. And so that, those teachings those instructions are the Dharma that we're following. And in its ultimate sense, the Dharma is the direct experience of, of an enlightened state of consciousness where the subject-object relationship collapses and I cease to have this like sense of myself perceiving an other and instead I perceive myself as all of existence and all beings as being a part of me and as being equally worthy of love and care as my own small self is. So we go for refuge. Going for refuge in the Dharma is, the, is when we recognize that there are things that we can do with our lives that are going to make an impact on our cosmic evolution. And then the third thing we go for refuge in, go for refuge to, is the Sangha. And that's a community of beings, community of people who are trying to put these things into practice. That's all of us in this room, you know, who, are, who come to Sky Creek Dharma Center and drive out to the suburbs of Chico to, to come to something like this rather than just watching Netflix or whatever else we might be doing on a Thursday night if we weren't at a, at a Dharma Center.
And also the Sangha are people like I mentioned, Tsongkhapa and Kamalashila, people who have devoted their lives to preserving these things so they don't get lost in history. You know? So we have both the Sangha in our immediate lives, our friends and our colleagues who are supporting us to try to improve ourselves, to try to achieve self-realization. Um, but also the historical Sangha, the, the lineage of people who have um, preserved these teachings so that they're accessible to us you know, in the future, down the line. So we go for refuge to the Buddha, the principle of enlightenment, the Dharma, the path to achieving enlightenment, and the Sangha, the people who are helping us out along the way, and the people who have um, preserved the Dharma so that it's available to future generations. And then we set our motivation. This is, the, the Sanskrit for this is bodhicitta. And um, bodhicitta means cultivating the obsessive commitment to devoting our lives to cultivating spiritually, cultivating our cosmic evolutionary potential. And the core of bodhicitta is recognizing that we have to be working for the benefit of others, that selfish motivations bring suffering that just worrying about me all the time and making sure that I have enough to eat and I my whatever's are all in the right order is actually creating kind of this contracted state of mind that makes it more or less impossible to grow as a as a human being and so we shift our orientation to being concerned about others to being you know, at least as important as my own needs. But really, a, a Buddha recognizes that other, others' needs are more important than my own. That really, I'm just kind of a flash in the pan in terms of my human lifespan. But I can make something, I can make that time worthwhile by serving and helping other people. And so that's why we do this, because ultimately achieving Buddhahood is a state in which we are completely other-focused. Instead of being self-obsessed, we're other-obsessed. And that's, that's what a bodhisattva is, is someone who is totally driven by seeing others having their needs met. So that's how we should begin every meditation practice. In fact, we get into it a little bit more in the subject material for this class. Um, this class, as I mentioned, is the first of a four-part, four-class uh, series on meditation. Um, I'm pulling this from a curriculum put together by my teacher. It's called the Dharma Essentials. In your handout, you will see that we have an outline that we'll review for the, that we'll go through in this class, and then there's also a handout. And the handout is four, five, six pages of additional reading. So everything that we'll cover in the class, almost everything that we'll cover in the class, <coughs> is included in the reading, and I, I really encourage you to um, peruse the reading um, on your own and use it to reinforce what we're going to discuss and what we're going to learn in the class tonight.
Um, as, as I mentioned, we're um, the the subject matter for tonight's class is primarily coming from Jetson Kappa. Jetson Kappa is the um, the founder of the Gelug lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, he lived from 1317 to 1419. Um, he founded the lineage of the Dalai Lamas. So. The current Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso, is the 14th Dalai Lama. The first Dalai Lama was discovered and tutored by um, Jade Tsongkhapa. So Jade Tsongkhapa started the Geluk lineage, which was a reform school of Buddhism. There were several different schools of Buddhism already existing in Tibet, and uh, the Geluk school kind of pulled them together, codified them, sort of gave them a... Um, canon of literature called the Kangyur and the Tengyur. This is all Buddhist trivia. If you ever on a trivia show and they ask you stuff about Buddhism, maybe this will come up. Um, and then uh, Jetson Kappa is largely um, referring back even further to Kamala Shila, who wrote a text called Applied Meditation or the Principles of Meditation. Um, I'm sure it's in there somewhere, so that's you can do that for your homework. Figure out what Kamala Shila's text was called that Jaito Kappa was referencing. Anyway. So um, the point is to kind of get technical about meditation, the hows and whys of meditation. Um, so first of all, we're going to look at some different terms for meditation, um, different ways of thinking about meditation, and different styles and approaches to meditation. So I'm primarily going to refer to the Sanskrit terms. My teacher primarily focused on Sanskrit, so there's a lot of Tibetan terminology in here, but I didn't, I haven't really focused so much on Tibetan. Um, so just because of my own knowledge and experience, I'm going to stick with the, the Sanskrit. But as you'll see in the handout, there are terms. Um, the, the first term is in Tibetan, and then in parentheses, the, the Sanskrit term comes after that. So the first term is bhavana. And bhavana is, um, all of these words mean meditation, but they mean different ways or approaches to meditation. So bhavana means habituation or cultivation. So this, right away we get a pretty clear idea of what, what is meditation. It's, a, it's habituation. It's about learning how to use our mind in a different kind of way and then practicing that over and over and over again until it becomes kind of second nature, that we're used to practicing meditation. Um, you know, when, when we get started with meditation, we, we begin to pay attention to how our mind is working. And um, if, you, if you have tried meditation before today, you maybe have noticed that when you sit down and uh, begin to still your mind, begin to put a concerted effort into stilling your mind, you'll notice that your mind makes a lot of noise. And it makes a lot of noise. It never shuts up, actually. And so this can be a deterrent for people who start meditating and they're like, oh, well, you know, those guys can still their mind, but not me. You know, I've got like a special mind that's too crazy to ever shut up. Um, but this is how everybody this is how everybody feels when they begin meditation. It's not like some people are good at meditation and some people are not good at meditation. Some people have the monkey mind 
and they can't still it, and other people have the monkey mind, and they can still it. It's a skill that requires practice. And so we have bhavana, habituation. The next one is dhyana, and um, dhyana is another word that simply means meditation. Uh, it also it has an implication of stillness and stability. And so dhyana is about learning to sort of quell that intense internal narrative just a little bit. Um, dhyana is the closest word to the English word meditation of these different Sanskrit and Tibetan terms. And dhyana is so core to Buddhism that that's the word that really got spread throughout the world as Buddhism started to spread from India and go to other continents. Um, there are two schools of Buddhism that you maybe have heard of, um, Chan Buddhism, which is um, Chinese Buddhism, and Zen Buddhism, which is um, Japanese Buddhism. These words are transliterations of the word dhyana. So when Buddhism went to China, and for the first time, people are like, what are you doing? And somebody said, dhyana. In Chinese, they said, chan. It was actually chana at first, and then it got simplified to chan. And then it moved from China to Japan, and chan got shortened even further to zen. So these are, um, these are transliterations. They're basically the word dhyana in Sanskrit pronounced with a Chinese accent, and then further to a Japanese accent. So dhyana is so important that it's really the main thing that got transmitted from uh, Indian Buddhism through China and, 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 uh, and uh, Japan. And that's really reflected in those styles of Buddhism and their really strong emphasis on just sit, just meditate. Next is samapati. Um, samapati um, mean, has implications of cessation or equilibrium. So again, uh, sama in Sanskrit mean, it comes into English actually as same or similar, our uh, English cognates for the Sanskrit root sama. So uh, sama means, the word sama means to sort of like bring things into uh, the same plane, you could say. And so um, that's why we have equilibrium as a translation for samapati. Next, we move to shamatha. Um, shamatha is often translated into English as stillness. Um, what shamatha is referring to specifically the technique or the skill of developing single-pointed concentration. Um, shamatha is really popular nowadays in the Buddhist world. Um, Alan Wallace, among other people, are um, teaching extensively uh, shamatha meditation um, as like the foundation. Like, don't go any further until you've mastered shamatha. There are different schools of thought on this, but right now it's pretty trendy. Um, so shamatha is developing, shamatha is like sharpening a tool, you know? It's like developing the skill, the technique, the mental capacity for being able to put your mind where you want it and to keep it there. And so, you know, the practices of shamatha are things like you observe the sensation of the breath on the inner lip of the nostril, and you don't let your mind waver from the physical sensations in this very small, subtle part of your anatomy. And of course, you know, as you're practicing, the mind does wander off and you gently bring it back 
But eventually you get to the, so I've been told, you get to the point where um, one can place their mind on an object of their choice and then hold it there unwaveringly indefinitely. Um, I've been told that you have to be able to put your mind on the object and not let it waver for a period of four hours before you're actually meditating. So that gives you a sense of what it's like to have a spiritual career. Um, you really do kind of have to put as much energy into it as you would for your professional career or um, another one of my teachers said about as much you have to put about as much effort into it as you would if you wanted to become a pretty decent concert pianist. Mm -hmm. Like, not Carnegie Hall, but like, what's the local one called? Laxon, you know, like, good enough to play a Laxon, you know? You have to, you have to, you, that's how much practice you have to put into it. That's how much time you have to put into it really, to really develop the skill of meditation. So, uh, hopefully that's not too discouraging. Mm -mm. And then uh, we have samadhi, and um, samadhi means literally things like bringing together or balance. It has sama in it again, like samapati, um, same uh, verbal root there. And um, samadhi, though, also has the implication of blissful absorption. So you're no, you don't just have shamatha. Once you have the shamatha, you kind of like, if you like master shamatha, you kind of graduate automatically into samadhi where it ceases to be something that you have to concentrate at and it becomes something that is blissful and spacious. Moving on, the, the types and objects of meditation. Um, I, find, I found this really helpful because there's, we, you know, we come into it with some like preconceptions about what a meditation is and uh, I, I certainly had the idea that meditation was this shamatha type thing where you have to be like laser pointed on a single object without un, without wavering, and that's very challenging. That's that's something that requires a lot of practice and and uh, diligence, consistent practice for a long period of time. Um, but it's not the only kind of meditation that there is. Um, you'll see on the on the outline that we have review, analytic, and fixation. So review meditation is um, where one is um, going, over, going over a topic or a set of steps or something in their mind. You could, you could say review is like memorization, like, excuse me, like memorizing, um, memorizing the meditation instructions or memorizing a meditation text. Uh, a liturgical text that you, you want to use as the sort of script for the meditation. The first step is really review it until you until you know the material very very well. You've got the meditation memorized. You know when you're first learning a meditation, you need to get the the sequence, the the uh, the steps that you need to go through. You know we have we have great things like guided meditations where you can listen to an audio recording or a text where you can put the script in front of you and read through the script and sort of like in a meditation, meditation mode, but your eyes are open and you're processing the thing that you're seeing. And then you're, you go through that until you have it memorized. You no longer need the, you no longer need the document or the uh, audio recording or whatever to, to follow along with. You've got it inside, you know? So that's the process of review meditation. We go over and over and over and over until we uh, 
And so we have the information inside. Then we move on to analytic meditation. And analytic meditation is, um, is actually very much like an intellectual exercise where you're processing the thing that you have reviewed, that you've memorized, and you're analyzing it to see if it makes sense to you. Is this, is this true or is it not true? Um, the, you know, what parts of this make sense to my, to my rationality and my logic, and what parts of it don't? And why do the things that make sense to me make sense to me, and why do the things that don't make sense to me not make sense to me? Um, this is really, really, really important because otherwise, if we don't go through the analysis meditation phase, we're just basically practicing dogmatic religion. And that's not ever been the purpose of Buddhism. Buddhism has never been something that you believe in. It's a scientific method that you, it's a scientific method in which the laboratory is the mind and you go through the process of, test, of doing the experiments in the laboratory to see if the results line up with what the hypothesis has, that has been posited to you is. Um, just believing that Buddhas are out there and that they're going to come and save us or something like that um, is not really, it's not effective, you know? Buddhism is not a system of truth. It's not a system where I give you the text and I say, believe this because it's, the text says to believe it. You know what I mean? The text is here, the texts are here to give us food for thought. And then the process is, comes from the testing. It comes from putting it into practice and seeing if it works. And, and the parts that work, figure out why they work. And the parts that don't work, figure out why they don't work. You have to do that. You have to go through that analytic process. And so I, when I learned that, that kind of turned my idea of spirituality on its head because I thought I was going into like trying to find this sort of like blissful state of absorption. I kind of wanted to go straight to samadhi. I mean, who doesn't? But, um, but actually, you have to, it has to pass your... It has to pass muster with your logic and your rationality. It's not something where you can just believe it blindly. It won't work if you believe it blindly. And, and, and Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, said that. He said that himself. He said, don't believe what I say. You have to test this. You have to test it. So I will pass that on to you. Don't believe what I say. Test it in your own laboratory. So the first step then is you have to learn it really, really well. You have to understand what are the metaphysical components that I'm, that I'm working with here. And then analyze it until it makes sense to you. And then once it makes sense to you, then you move on to the fixation meditation. And that's developing that shamatha. That's when you put your mind unwaveringly holding on to the truths that you yourself have discovered through the process of, of uh, an analysis. And that's when you, and that's like burning it in, you know, that's like, th through all of this, we're, you know, rewriting our nervous system. We're re-patterning, we're reorganizing our neural pathways. And the more effectively we can do that, the more quickly we will see results in our meditation practice. And so that's what they call here fixation. Um, but you can't jump to fixation. I mean, you can, you can in the sense that shamatha is developing concentration and you do something like observe the sensation of breath at the inner lip of the nostril. But that's, again, that's like, 
you know, they say that meditation is the, is the axe that you use to chop down the tree of suffering. Like, there's no point in having a sharp axe. I mean, unless you're going to use it for something, you know? Meditation isn't useful in and of itself. It's useful as a, as a tool for getting out of samsara. And so when we're doing shamatha, that single point of concentration practice, we're sharpening the tool, we're honing the tool. And then when we go through the review analytic fixation stages, what we're doing is progressively getting more effective at using the tool to chop down the tree of suffering. The other, the other metaphor they use is like the raft, that we're like building the raft. And then once we've built the raft, we can use the raft to get across the, the river of samsara. But the, you don't then take the raft with you. You don't need the raft anymore once you've crossed the river. You know? You've done what you needed to do with it. So, um, getting a little more into the um, Tibetan style and approach, the, uh, the way that the Geluk school categorizes meditation, we have um, five main things that we want to um, pay attention to. The six preliminary activities, which we're going to go into quite a bit of detail in just a minute here. The six preliminary activities are... Um, the things that you do in meditation in order to prepare your mind to go deeper into meditation. Um, these are the, called the preliminaries. This shorthand for this is the preliminaries. Um, the preliminaries are a totally effective, solid meditation in and of themselves. Um, and uh, you'll see what I mean in a minute here. Um, but they also are like the appetizer that gets you ready to go into the deeper main course of the meditation. The next is the six conditions for an ideal meditation environment. These kind of seem reversed to me. I kind of, I feel like the six conditions for an ideal meditation environment are sort of the, prelimin the prerequisite for the six preliminaries, but I'm following the outline. Um, this, is, uh, this is coming straight from Kamala Shila. The six conditions for an ideal meditation environment are... One, stay in a place conducive to meditation. You want your home and your surrounding environment to be uh, a place that supports your meditation practice. Um, speaking personally, I live about 25 miles outside of town. It's very quiet where I live. There are no traffic sounds. There are no neighbors. And I live out there primarily because Kamala Shila told me that I should stay in a place conducive to meditation. Um, number two, live simply. Keep your wants and needs few. As a, as a prerequisite to meditation, don't own a lot of stuff and don't want a lot of stuff. In fact, number three says, be satisfied with the things you have. So don't want more stuff, and the stuff that you do have, be happy with it. Be content with what you have, you know? There's kind of a Buddhist joke. You know, desire is like the whole problem in Buddhism. It's like, it's ignorantly thinking that things outside of ourselves are going to make us happy, and, and constantly craving those things, and go, going after those things, and kind of being willing to push pe other people out of the way in order to get them, because we think that the, the happiness-producing characteristics are inherent in the thing. 
um, when in fact they are our own subjective appreciation of the thing that gives the desirable qualities. The desirable qualities are not in the, in the object, they're uh, a quality of our perception, not a quality of the object itself. And uh, so there's like this Buddhist joke that says, how do you have desire and contentment at the same time? Stop me if you've heard this one. You want the things that you already have. Mm -hmm. There you go. There's the meaning to, uh, meaning to life. Keep your wants and needs few and be satisfied with the things that you have. Number four. Kamala Shila, 750 AD, he said, give up being busy. Number five, enough said, right? <laughs> Just put it down. Um, number five, keep your ethics. Keep your ethics very well, Kamala Shila emphasizes this. Um, this is because we have to, if you've got stuff weighing on your conscience, and you're like replaying that like nasty interaction that you had with that other person where you kind of lost your temper or whatever, um, then that can throw your meditation off. Uh, in fact, it does throw your meditation off. Um, this, uh, from yoga philosophy, the Yoga Sutra by um, Patanjali was written around 250 AD, we think, we don't know for sure, but we think it was written around 250 AD. Um, he outlines the eight limbs of yoga. Um, you know, when we hear the word yoga, we're used to thinking of like yoga studios where you have like the spandex pants and the rubber mat and like you do all of the contortions and stuff like that. Um, that's only one of the eight limbs of yoga. Um, it's the third of the eight limbs. And yoga is a, is a, sequ is a sequential process. And so the, the eight limbs of yoga are yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi, which we've already learned that term. And so yama and niyama are ethics. Yamas are the things that you stop doing. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't use your sexual energy to manipulate people, don't be like in general dissatisfied with your life and constantly craving. And then the, the niyamas are things that you start doing, which are like clean up your diet, clean up your home and your lifestyle, um, be content with the things that you have, treat other people with respect, that kind of thing, you know? And so then the third is asana. Those are the physical postures, the downward dogs and the forward folds and all of that kind of stuff. So really, according to the yoga, according to the complete system of yoga, there's no point in doing asana unless you're already doing yama and niyama. And that's what it says here. The prerequisite to having a, an ideal meditation environment is keep your ethics. Because keeping your ethics is what creates the potency to have real success in your meditation. And if you're not keeping your ethics and you're like constantly like selfish in little ways and constantly undercutting people in little ways and constantly like telling white lies here or there and like flirting with other people's partners or whatever, you know, I mean, just idle speech, just like gossip, you know, is one of the, in Buddhist philosophy, is one of the ten don'ts. Like, don't, let's just go through them real quick. The, the, um, the ethics according to Buddhist philosophy are don't, three of body, four of speech, three of mind. Don't kill or harm other beings in any way, physically. Don't 
um, steal. Don't take anything that's not freely given to you. Um, don't use your sexual energy to harm others. Don't, you know, screw around with other people's partners. Don't, you know, use, you know, we, adultery is obvious here, but I mean, it's also like the subtle ways in which we like use our allure to get our way a little bit. Um, the four of speech are don't lie, don't deceive people, don't ever give anyone an impression of reality that's different than the impression that you yourself have. Um, don't speak divisively. Don't um, don't speak in ways. Don't speak in a way to one person that would make them think poorly of another person. Um, don't speak harshly. You know, speaking in ways that are mean or aggressive. You know, um, the monks are not allowed to swear. For example, they're not allowed to use curse words because of this. This this is that vow. You know, um, I'm not a monk, so I don't have to do that quite as much. Um, lie, divisive, harsh, and idle, gossip. And then the three of mind are being, are being dissatisfied, uh, which in other words means being unhappy when somebody else gets something that they want. When something good happens to somebody else and it makes me feel bad. That's what this is like, don't do that. And this and, you know, example is like when somebody else at work gets the promotion that you think you should have gotten or something like that. Um, somebody else gets a new, I don't know, a new gadget and like being jealous of their gadget, you know? Um, then the next one is um, being happy when something bad happens to somebody that you don't like. Like somebody at work you don't like gets fired and you're like, well, good riddance, adios, you know? Um, and then the third is um, wrong worldview, which basically means believing your own bullshit, um, believing that your opinions are an accurate reflection of reality, thinking that you know better than other people. Those are the 10. Those are the 10 um, freedom vows, pratimoksha vows in, in um, Buddhism. Uh, and that's ethics. Keep your ethics very well. Yamas and niyamas if you're into yoga. And then the sixth one is um, get rid of sense desires and desires for worldly pleasure. And you can easily see how this could affect your meditation if you're, in your, if you're trying to meditate, but you're constantly thinking about having eggs benedict for breakfast or something like that. You know what I mean? And so you just have to realize that that stuff doesn't really have the happiness char the characteristics of happiness producing are not in the eggs benedict. You know, they're, they're coming from the, the perception of eggs benedict as pleasurable. Okay. Those are the six conditions for an ideal meditation environment. The correct posture for meditation, um, if you've been coming to my classes, we pretty much always go through this, the seven points of meditation posture in, our, in the meditation that we do after the break. Um, we'll go through them briefly today, um, but let's see if we can go through them real quickly right now. The correct posture for meditation is to have a stable seat, um, to rest your hands, uh, rest your hands loosely in your lap in such a way that they're not pulling you forward or pushing you back that your spine is straight and stacked, that your chin is slightly tucked, your mouth is closed, 
the tongue is resting against the lips of your mouth, the eyes are neither completely closed nor completely open, they're about 80% open and you're gazing kind of loosely, not looking at anything, but letting a little bit of light in. The shoulders are level. I don't know, that's more or less seven. Um, basically having a stable, upright seat in which you can be comfortable uh, and not squirm while you're trying to meditate. And then um, the fifth of these uh, is the object of meditation itself. That's the ability to know what the object is, the ability to place your mind on the object, and your ability to hold your mind on the object until the point where you go into that samadhi state of blissful awareness. So going back again to the eight limbs of yoga, where we have yama and niyama, which is ethics, the, the ten vows of how to not harm others. Um, asana, which means basically preparing your seat for meditation. It doesn't really have a whole lot to do with all of the contortion-y stuff. It's mostly the purpose of yoga asana is really just to prepare your body for long periods of sitting and meditation. Then you have pranayama, which is uh, your ability to regulate your breathing. Um, pratyahara, which is... Um, withdrawing the senses. And so we have several of these, right? We have live simply, be satisfied with, you ha with what you have, give up being busy and get rid of sense desires. Those are all pratyahara, the fourth limb of yoga. Um, no, the fifth limb of yoga is pratyahara. And then the last three, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi are all different terms for meditation, different actually techniques for meditation. So dharana is the ability to uh, identify what a useful meditation object is, so you know what is worth meditating on. Basically, it's the ability to identify the object and put your mind there. Dharana is the ability to hold your mind on the object for a long period of time, so that's similar to shamatha. And then samadhi is once you master dharana and dhyana, the ability to identify the object, the ability to hold on to the object, then samadhi is the state of meditation which is blissful absorption in the object. So those are the eight limbs of yoga, which are totally reflected here with what Kamala Shila and Chaitsong Kapha are saying. And since yoga is all the rage nowadays, I think it's worthwhile to mention because um, we really do, you know, for all of the, these people who are out there, they're already doing yoga that's like very high spiritual practices, and we just kind of need to put the other seven limbs back into the practice. Okay, then the six preliminaries and the seven ingredients. And so this is what we were talking about before, the preliminaries. Um, this is, in the outline, this is represented in two different uh, sequences. So I'm going to go through the first sequence, and then we'll go through the second sequence in the meditation after the break. Um, okay, the six preliminaries. Um, number one is... Clean up your room. I'm not kidding. That's what it is. It's actually what it says here. And uh, this is because, you know, the outer and inner are reflections of one another. And so in order to prepare the mind to practice stillness, we have to remove clutter, you know? Just like it says in the, uh, in the six conditions of an ideal meditation environment. Live simply... Give up being busy, be happy with the things you have, clean up your room, put your stuff away, you know, be in a tidy, neat, uncluttered environment. Because uncluttering your space has the subjective effect of also uncluttering your mind. So, you know, I mean, like, put all the bills away, put the laptop away, put the phone away, 
and um, and like prepare yourself for that. And so you know, if you're tidy, then you don't you know you don't have it's not as big a deal. You know what I mean? But it's nice to sort of like look around your meditation space before you begin and say, okay, what can I tidy up here? You know, I don't necessarily need to vacuum the floor or whatever. But maybe just like pay attention to that the space is tidy and organized. Um, and then setting up an altar. So, um, you know, obviously in Buddhism, there are all these different, like, things that you put on your altar. There are water bowls. I don't know if we have any water bowls here. I have we have a water bowl. <laughs> Usually there's seven, sometimes eight. Um, traditionally, seven water bowls. In the Tibetan practice. In the Tibetan practice, right. Yeah, that's what I'm... That's, what I'm getting at is that there's like this very Tibetan way of doing it, but it doesn't have to be that way. It just, what it means is to set aside a corner of your room that is dedicated to this purpose and that has um, uplifting and inspiring imagery. So this can be like gifts from people that are special to you. Um, incense and candles are very nice. Um, you know, we have all these beautiful um, Tibetan Buddhist iconography on the wall, if that speaks to you, having a tanka or a statue. Um, but it doesn't have, you know, obviously, it doesn't have to be Buddhisty stuff. You know, you can, there's, it's like totally appropriate to have pictures of whichever kind of spiritual beings inspire you. Or maybe not even spiritual beings. You know, we have yantras and stuff like that, like the Sri Yantra and these different images that come out of the various Hindu schools that have effects on the mind. And so if you have something that you feel attracted to, if you have something that's working for you, then do that. You know, obviously my, my goal is not to convert you into a religion. My goal is to try to convey some scientific method and, and encourage you to apply it. So it's not about doing things exactly the way the Tibetans did it. I mean, we're not in Tibet. We don't have a monastic culture. We're not gonna like, we can't do Tibetan Buddhism the way that Tibetans did Tibetan Buddhism because their whole society was structured around this. You know, they had this monastic university system where, you know, half of the society dropped out and devoted their lives to spiritual practice. Um, Robert Thurman says that while we have a military industrial complex in our culture in Tibet, they had a spiritual industrial complex where uh, that's what the culture was oriented around. That's what the economy was oriented around, was this monastic university system in which the culture thought it was great that a bunch of people wanted to drop out of society and dedicate their lives to meditation and self-realization. So obviously, we don't have that in our culture so much. So um, we can't really, like as much as we would want to, we can't really become gilukpas or gilukmas or whatevers. Um, so anyway, use whatever imagery you like. The idea is to have a, a, a dedicated space and time that you set aside to this purpose, right? Um, um, then we set out offerings. This is another thing that is um, fairly Tibetan. The idea is that we are by setting out offerings, which can be the water bowls that I mentioned a minute ago, you know, there are seven water bowls. They're just little copper or silver or glass or steel or whatever bowls, and then you put water in them, and then you visualize that the water represents something like food or music or perfume or incense. And, of course, you can use all those offerings yourselves. You, I mean, themselves, um, 
the water bowls were basically there because people couldn't, you know, Tibetan monks couldn't afford all of the stuff to make the real offerings uh, so readily. Um, and so they're just offering water, which is valuable, but it doesn't, you know, it's not like they can't afford water. But the, the main point here is to um, show yourself that what you're doing is worthwhile by putting something of value on the altar as an offering to the Buddhas and the, the Buddhas and the Dharma and the Sangha um, as an exercise to show your mind that you're investing in this. You see what I mean? That, you, that it's important to you and that's why you put out these offerings. In Tibetan Buddhism, in some systems of Tibetan Buddhism, they have these tormas, which they make these like pastries. These like you put a lot of time into making these pastries out of stuff that you would never actually want to eat yourself. And so you like spend all of this time like combining like tuna fish and cornmeal and yogurt and cottage cheese and all this weird stuff that when combined is not really doesn't combine to make like an appetizing meal. But what you're doing is saying, okay, I'm investing all this time and money into making this because I'm showing myself that I believe that I'm reaching out to the Buddhas and by doing this, I'm going to you know, receive their attention and their energy. It's, it's, it's a thought experiment, you know? It's an exercise that you're doing for your own mind. So what the offerings are, are things that should be pleasing to your senses and then visualize that you are offering those to others. That's why incense and perfume are like great options for this. Like put, get some frankincense oil or sandalwood oil and run it in a diffuser or put it on your, you know, give yourself some really high-end perfume and then put it on your own body before you meditate and you're like, offer that as like a way to entice and invite the spiritual beings to come and hang out with you while you're meditating. It's very beautiful. Um, sitting in the... Proper position, the seven-point posture, uh, which I already mentioned. Um, next is visualize the holy being. So you've cleaned up your space. You've set up this beautiful beautiful environment. You've set out the offerings, like some bowls of M&Ms or whatever. And then, and then you're like, get it, and then you get into the position. You sit down on your cushion. You prepare yourself for like the actual meditation part. And then the first thing you do is you visualize the holy being. So... The holy being can be a lot of different things, and it just depends on you know your own approach and your own style. You know, um, the traditional holy being is to visualize your own guru. So if you have a spiritual teacher, um, to visualize them, but not necessarily in their human form, to visualize them as as the enlightened being that they that they are to you, or that you know that they will eventually become. You can visualize yourself as an enlightened being. Like someday, Mojo is going to be long gone, but some kind of like Manjushri or Medicine Buddha or whatever is going to be the emanation of this mind stream or something like that. And to say, okay, someday, someday I'm going to be enlightened. Someday I will achieve this goal and I can invoke that being now as my teacher. And they're the one who's guiding me along the way. Um, 
I, I like the idea of visualizing that your um, significant other is your guru. Like if a Buddha is going to manifest in your life as somebody who's trying to help you out, like wouldn't they come as somebody who's like very, very close to you and somebody who loves you and is like actually taking care of you? And so you could see your partner or your parents or your child as being an enlightened being who's there guiding you carefully along the way. Um, but you want to invite them so that they're there with you. Um, they're meditating with you. They're happy that you're, that you're putting the effort into it. And now we have the seven ingredients, the, um, which uh, here is listed as gather virtue and purify obstacles. So um, this is, again, we're, we're gradually shifting our mind from being outward-oriented to inner-oriented so that we uh, can go deeper into the meditation practice. So we have these seven steps here. Uh, mental prostrations. Mental prostrations are, uh, prostrations are uh, again, a pretty Tibetan-y thing of um, physically laying out your body on the ground in front of a, a, an enlightened being or a lama or a guru or an effigy of an enlightened being um, in order to sort of, you know, physically connect your own mind to the notion that these beings are in a state of consciousness that is far beyond, incomparable to what we currently experience. And we're putting ourselves in a position of humility towards them, like recognizing that, like, I'm not the boss and I'm not like the coolest thing that there is and that there are things that are a lot cooler and I'm going and I'm trying to get to that state. And so I'm setting myself at a place where I am venerating and honoring that. Now, it's all symbolic. You know what I mean? This Again, we get into this thing with guru yoga where we like give our actual we give our actual power to a human being who's in the guru role, and that's not really what this is about. Um, in fact, it even says right there, mental prostrations. You know what I mean? This is a mental exercise of saying, okay, I'm not an enlightened being. I've invoked the enlightened being in front of me. I'm putting myself in a deferential place to them because I don't want my inflamed ego to hijack my meditation practice. With mental offerings, the next one, um, we've already put out some M&Ms or incense or whatever. And um, with mental offerings, though, we imagine that we can give things that are far beyond our ordinary, um, ordinarily what's accessible to us. So um, with mental offerings, um, there's a traditional Buddhist prayer that says, I'm offering the whole earth and all of the continents and all of the mountains and all of the oceans and the whole planet smells beautiful like perfume and incense and um, the flowers are continuously blooming and, um, you know, beautiful music fills the air and it's like the whole thing, like the beaches are made of gemstones and all of the buildings are made of gold and like just like mind-blowingly gorgeous and pristine and beautiful and pure and then you imagine that you can sort of fabricate this jeweled planet and then offer that to the guru and so this is all about like generating merit and building up that 
intensity that gives the meditation practice real potency and real power. The next one is confession and purification. Um, and this is the same as, this is like the, a part of the um, keeping your ethics. Um, confession is not, it's not at all like a self-flagellation thing. It's not like I'm a bad person and look what I did. It's more like I'm clearing my conscience by getting this thing off my chest. Like if you had a, something you needed to talk about with a friend and you talk about it with your friend and then you feel better afterwards, you know what I mean? That's like what confession and purification is about. Like getting it off your, confession, the act of getting it off your chest is what leads to purification. Getting the, you know, like breaking up the shame, breaking up the guilt and getting it out of the way. Your guru, the holy being, being that you uh, visualize, they love you. They love everything about you. They forgive you and they love you, so it's okay. You know, you don't, there's no reason to feel guilt or shame when you're, when you're um, sharing these things with your, uh, with your guru. In, you know, it's a in mental exercise, thought experiment. Um, rejoicing is, um, this is a really important part of the practice, I think. In fact, it's probably the part that we, don't give enough attention to like we probably do the like self-flagellation confession purification thing kind of a lot you know um but we don't probably do enough rejoicing and rejoicing is thinking about the goodness that is in the world thinking about things that other people have done thinking about things that you yourself have done but also thinking about things that other people have done to make the world a better place um the the traditional tibetan buddhist thing is to say that um you get 10% of the good karma um, of the original act for rejoicing the act. And so that's kind of like free good karma, you know? So, uh, so this is like a great way to like put a bunch of karmic, good karmic money in the bank is to just think about good things that other people have done and, and to be happy that those people are doing those things. And um, karma doesn't really, it's not really like a bank account. You can't just like get enough karma and then like cash in your chips for like a new boat or whatever. But um, it's about seasoning your mind, you know. It's about habituating your mind to be looking for the goodness in the world and to, and to be happy when you see it. Um, so the, the last, not quite the last two, the um, requesting teachings... Um, According to the Tibetan Buddhist <coughs> philosophy, the, the um, Buddhas won't stay in our lives unless we ask them to stay in our lives. Um, and again, you can see how this is kind of a thought experiment. Like if you don't really think about it, you don't really pay attention to it, it's kind of like some days it's there and some days it's not. But um, in these uh, seven ingredients, they say request teachings. Um, Uh, the act of requesting teachings is what actually creates the teachings. But you kind of have to be careful what you wish for. Because um, if you request teachings on patience, <laughs> you have to be ready for when people piss you off that that's your guru who's showing up to give you the teaching that you asked for. So when that guy cuts you off in traffic, that's the Buddha showing up in your life to give you an opportunity to practice patience instead of anger. Um, you know, if you, if you ask for teachings for generosity, 
then you have to recognize that when the, the, the people who are hanging out at the um, parking lot with a sign asking for money, like those people are Buddhas give, showing up in your life, giving you the opportunity to, to, um, to practice generosity. I have a friend who, who calls um, people who are, who are begging for money good karma drive-through. Because you can just like put cash out the window and help people and get good karma as a result. Practicing generosity. Um, requesting the teachers to stay um, in order to keep the teachings coming in our lives. We have to set the intention that, that we want them and that we're continuing to magnetize teachings to us. And then seven is dedicate the goodness. Um, this again has to do with the altruism and bodhicitta. Um, dedicating goodness is about wishing that others could have the benefits that I receive from practicing uh, spiritual cultivation, practicing meditation, um, wanting others to wanting others to have those benefits. And that's, and, uh, that's cultivating selflessness and a kind heart, a sweet heart, generous heart. And then there's one more on here, which is requesting blessings. Um, we've got a lot of requests. We're requesting teachings, and we're requesting the teachers to stay. In those two, we're kind of saying, I don't have, I, I need more teachings. Either I don't have them, or I have them, but I need more. Um, requesting blessings is more like you want to increase the goodness that's already there. Does that make sense? Like, I'm just trying to make a clear delineation between the requesting teachings and requesting blessings, because they're both requesting. Requesting teachings is like, I'm not doing very well in this area, please help me. And requesting blessings is like, <clears throat> things, are, things are already good, let's just like have a rain of goodness coming down. <clears throat> So there we go, the, the six preliminaries and the seven ingredients. That is a ton of information about um, how and why to meditate. Um, this is like pretty hardcore Tibetan Buddhist stuff. Um, I think it provides a lot of really good food for thought. So um, I hope that you will um, be able to use this information in your own meditation practice. Um, before we take a break, um, I just want to um, make sure to do the traditional, um, the traditional way to close a, a teaching or close a meditation practice is to do the dedication. Um, usually we do this at the, at the end of the evening, but I'd like to do it um, now before we take a break just so that we can continue to generate that up good positive momentum. So let's just take a moment and visualize that, you know, imagine that the, the, the fact that we're doing this on a Thursday night instead of watching Netflix or hanging out at the bar, um, that this generates a lot of good karma, a lot of positive momentum. And we, can, we, we could, if we wanted to, we could keep that for ourselves, but that would not be really helping um, because... The real problem isn't our lives. We have the leisure and fortune to show up to something like this. But there are many, many beings in the world 
who don't have this kind of freedom and luxury that we do. And so when we dedicate the goodness of what we've done, we imagine and remember that we're doing this not to benefit just ourselves, but we're doing this to benefit all beings. And visualize that this energy that we've created by, with our concentration, with our attention, radiates out from, from our heart and fills the room and overflows and fills Chico and overflows and fills the whole hemisphere and overflows and fills the whole planet and all of the beings, billions and billions of beings on the planet, the ants and the animals and the human beings and the, the beings that we, we don't know about, that we don't see, that they all have this benefit. It can, it can replicate unlimited. All the good karma we have, we can plant it in every single being's heart. And we can see that overflow and fill our whole planet and overflow and fill our whole galaxy. There are billions and billions of galaxies and infinite numbers of beings. And the work that we do here by studying and contemplating and meditating on these things has the power to help all of them. That's how we dedicate.